As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. All you need is a computer with internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. Can't imagine fitting anything else into your life? Well, with Talkspace, therapy is as easy as sending your therapist a message. Get something off your chest whenever you need to. Talk about everyday challenges at work or at home. Just chat about life. There are no extra commutes, no leaving the office, and no judgments. Remember that therapy isn't just about venting your innermost thoughts or digging into childhood memories. It's also about practical, everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. Having a therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to who is trained to listen and help you make positive changes. The Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges we all face. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash WFTL. That's WFTL, not the usual friends. And use the code WFTL to get $45 off your first month and to show your support for this show. That's Talkspace.com slash WFTL. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This show, maybe on the surface, doesn't seem like it's going to be a very talk about our differences show, because I'm talking to Eric Holthouse. He is a staff writer at Grist, and he is also a fellow at the University of Minnesota's Institute on the Environment. And you know what? We agree on probably most every political topic you could name. But in some ways, this conversation is a throwback to one of the original intentions of the show, which is to highlight the importance of uncomfortable conversations. And our conversation got uncomfortable for two reasons. One is that Eric isn't just a climate activist. He's a climate activist who's made some kind of radical changes in his life, including committing to not flying five years ago. He only takes about one flight a year. And his commitment to that made me uncomfortable. Because I like to think of myself as, as pretty woke on most issues, but his lifestyle makes me wonder, like, am I am I really? Like, what do I what do I have to do? What what's asked of me? So we talked about that. And then the other avenue that was a little bit uncomfortable is that Eric is on the autism spectrum. And it's a diagnosis he got in adulthood, and it's a diagnosis that he says has helped him make sense of his whole life. So we talked about that too. And I found him just delightful. And I think you will as well. So coming right up, Eric Holthouse. My guest this week is Eric Holthouse. He is a staff writer at Grist, among other things. 
so the way that I came about you, the way that I know who you are, <laughs> is um, you don't fly. You made a commitment um, out of your concern for climate uh, to, to not fly. And that was how many years ago? That was about five years ago. So walk me through kind of what what that was the result of and then how it's been going. Because that's a long time to carry that commitment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it started out of frustration. I think that um, I was working in climate change for almost a decade at that point and still didn't really fully internalize what it meant for me. And um, this was right after the last major IPC, IPCC report, which said, you know, geoengineering is off the table, you know, like we're on the course for the worst case scenario, blah, blah, blah. Like, and that's the like international... Inter- intergovernmental panel on climate change. Intergovernmental plan. Yeah. So this is a UN group of the world's best scientists that come together every few years to produce findings and assemble this best state-of-the-art knowledge. And, and this was, and then five years ago, they were like, yeah. oh, well, I feel like that's <laughs> what they've been saying for a while. But but for, was there something about that particular report that, that got to you? I think it was the juxtaposition of that report and my own personal life. Like I had been working in East Africa on a climate change adaptation project with subsistence farmers living in New York City at the time, flying back and forth between Ethiopia and, and JFK, and just like transiting those worlds was just such a shock to my system. And I kept asking myself, you know, after a year or two or three years go by, like, what is the change that's actually happening as a result of this? Like, I'm sort of, you know, like, zooming in as this, like, meteorologist scientist person. White savior, maybe? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it was very deeply, like, uncomfortable for Mm. me to fill that role. And, you know, like, actually probably best thing I could do is just not fly anymore and like, you know, talk about that (laughs) as a, I never expected to be, you know, covered in the Washington Post and the Guardian and like be made fun of on Fox News for this. But it's just sort of like, apparently sort of rare to have people that are working on climate change make major changes in their life because of what they're learning. I think it's becoming more common now. I have a couple of thoughts. One is um, you got made fun of by Fox News, although they also make fun of Al Gore for flying. So you can't win, I guess. <laughs> That's not news. Um, and the other thing is there there are probably people who would say, you know, you were doing a good thing by going to Africa to, to lead climate change um, uh, progress there. And why wouldn't you – didn't you, the good you do there outweigh whatever – cost to the environment would be mm. for you to fly. I mean, they're going to fly the planes anyway, I believe. It's probably the—I put my hands on my hips and look scolding, by the way, for, for podcasters. They're going to fly the planes anyway, Eric. Shouldn't you just go? Uh, I think the the very dangerous thing in, in embedded in that uh, thought process is that you can make that argument for literally anything you're doing. Right. And, you know, this is why, like, business travelers are like, well, you know, it's worth it for me to just go there for the face-to-face meeting because, you know, all the studies say, like, you can close the deal better in person than you can on the phone. So, like, it's going to be worth it to our company's bottom line. 
to to just go there in person and like do the work face to face. And I mean, the stark reality is is that just can't exist anymore with the climate situation the way it is. It's just like that's the scale of change that's necessary, and it's going to be, you know, for equity purposes, needs to be borne by the people that are the highest emitters, which are frequent flyers and people, you know, like you and I or the people that are listening. It like chances are, you know, like we're we have higher carbon footprints than the average world citizen, like almost guaranteed. So, so trying to get my head around it a little bit and feeling very guilty about my (laughs) own flying Um, because in recent years I have been a rather frequent flyer. Um, But I want to get my head around it because I, I think both what you're doing and the guilt that I feel are both important things to talk about. And I want to understand now, Was do you think your specific flights were were a big enough problem that you wanted to stop doing them? Or was it more that you wanted to reframe your relationship to what you can do for climate change? Yes. <laughs> Both? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that—so um, I did a quick calculation and found out that I had— um, Something like 10 times the average American's carbon footprint, which is a huge amount. I mean, I was flying like 100,000 miles a year. Um, And cut that down to like just slightly less than the average American's after giving up flying. Um, So, you know, like that was 90, like something like 90% of my personal carbon budget was flying, which is probably true for most frequent flyers. It's just a huge amount. Of difference that you can make. Can you quantify it in a way that people might be able to understand? Like, how many times would you, how far would you have to drive in a car to okay, equal one sure. flight? Is there some so, easy conversion uh, let's metric? Say, let's say, like, a uh, round trip flight from New York to LA is probably about equal to the amount, average amount of driving in a full year. Oh. So, um, in, in like a regular car driving by yourself. So, so if you're um, somebody that thinks it's a good idea to carpool and a good idea to mm-hmm. reduce your driving, well, you could probably make a big dent in it by just not flying a couple times. Oh, for sure. Even yeah. offset multiple years of driving. Right. Now, let's talk about the guilt, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> because I think one reason why you got all the attention you did um, is that it's a dramatic thing to do. There's a sort of inherent drama in it. And I think also it calls to mind for a lot of people like, oh, is that what I should be doing? Should I be doing that? Do I need to be doing that? Um, You're sort of nodding your head. So I guess maybe first respond to that and then I can talk about guilt some more. Yeah. And I think the way that it's taken me – the full five years to come to this sort of way of thinking about it is that I think the most powerful part, and I'm like such, like I feel, you know, sort of weird talking about this ever because I've like, (laughs) most of my friends would, and I hopefully I would say that I'm sort of like try to be a humble person. (laughs) It's like weird talking about my myself and my, I feel more comfortable talking about the large scale problem, but it's like clearly here for this case related these are related. So the way that we think about the world and our place in the world, climate change 
literally connects us to the world in the way that our the food that we eat, you know, the the choices that we make almost everything everything in every single day affects actually affects the world and actually affects people you know on the other side of the planet that we'll never meet. We are physically connected via the climate system. So I think that has made me think um about, you know, our own importance of our individual actions and it's impossible to separate the fact that we're all literally connected in this rapidly climate changing world and we really do depend on each other and we really do need each other to all sort of like row the same way you know like and it's sort of impossible to to think about that happening if we can't share a vision of what that world might look like and so that's what i think that you're starting to see just in recent months like especially you know since since the 2016 election i feel like people are sort of regrouping and thinking well what do we do uh it, when we have sort of existential level problems that are actually being you know feel out of control right now feels like we can't make progress on it and i think that coming up with narratives and thinking about the near future and the world that we want to be the world that needs to exist is actually usually the same thing like we want a world that is reflecting you know justice and equality and ecological constraints because the science says that if we don't have that then we won't have a civilization anymore like right. we're at that scale where we need the world that we need and the world that we want are the same thing and so imagining that together coming up with that shared vision of this world can exist if we are all like working on that together like it's just you know it's that funny. relieves the guilt for me cuz i hear you talk about this stuff and it, I think you're using almost identical, and if not identical, it's definitely language that echoes the way that I talk about social justice on this show a lot. And the way I talk about white supremacy and, and, and our place, white people's place in enabling sup- white supremacy to continue. Mm-hmm. And I've, I feel like I've done a lot of you know personal work, let's say, to become comfortable with talking about that. I think there probably was a time not too long ago that I couldn't even use the words white supremacy because it felt weird and, and dangerous to talk about. And from there, I've come to a place where I think just a couple of shows ago, I was talking with Carol Anderson about the need for white people to put their bodies on the line, mm-hmm. to literally go and show up in marches, to like do things that connect them to their own communities and to communities that aren't their own mm-hmm. in, in, in necessarily kind of physical ways. And I'm kind of hearing myself say that and hearing you talk about our connection to the world. And I'm thinking like, OK, so he's actually talking about something that's the same idea that it's all well and good to talk about, well, I believe in climate change and we should do more about climate change. But if you're not doing something, like with your physical presence on this earth, then how real is your commitment? But but then another parallel is it's so easy to get overwhelmed. Because at least with social justice, like racial justice, I'll say specifically, because I know that environmental justice is kind of a another framework 
to, to talk about social justice or social justice, another framework for environmental justice. Um, I can kind of see myself change. I can see progress in the world. With climate change, I could stop flying tomorrow and it would save me a trip from my in-laws. That'd be good. <laughs> um, but I'm not ever kind of going to see the, the ch- difference that would make. Yeah, there's a mismatch in um, inherent in the way the atmosphere transfers heat around the planet. It's like <laughs> the oceans store. You're just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there's science on it. Yeah. Okay. The, <laughs> the ocean stores heat for a thousand years. Right. So we're just now real, realizing that, you know, we're locking in change for centuries. You know, the, even if we go to zero carbon emissions worldwide this week, the oceans have already warmed enough to where it's going to be melting ice for hundreds of years more. So it's just sort of like we are right now, the choices are, you know, choosing between a world with like potentially like devastating sea level rise in the next couple hundred years to like a mass extinction with like, you know, 80% of lost species and like human civilization is not possible. So like, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be bad, but it could also be like really, 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 really bad. So podcasting audience, you saw my eyes literally like rolled back into my head um, because this is, I, I, the uncomfortable laughter comes from like, this is terrifying stuff. I mean, it's terrifying and oppressive in the same way that civil rights injustices can be oppressive. Mm. And it's, they're related. And, and maybe we should talk more specifically about that for people who, who, who may not be up on, on that intersectionality. But how, I guess, I feel like the, a lot of people, and maybe I should use me, like the way, the place that I've come to in, in thinking about my own role in climate is um, it is more important to push for companies and governments to change in my own individual actions, like recycling or not picking up a straw. Like that's kind of just like gravy. But from what I'm hearing from you, that's not quite maybe the right way to think about it. Yeah, I think that our individual actions and systemic radical change in the way, you know, the the intersectional justice like you're talking about, it's intimately intertwined. Like, you can't separate them. I think that we all, yeah, I think like what you've said, we need to get to the place where we realize our own individual, you know, moral imperative to put our bodies on the line for this problem is like we're, it, it, it's it's <laughs> it's an existential crisis yeah. and i guess that's a, that brings us me back to the other thing i feel like we keep circling around which is it's an existential crisis it could be bad or really really bad i feel like i am i'm i'm a social justice warrior <laughs> like i'm i'm there for so much but i hear that and part of me is like well then why the fuck should i do anything mm-hmm. like right and i think that's a pretty natural in fact i've done some reading on this that is a completely natural human response yeah yep and this so is so what <laughs> so what do we do then mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that um and this is where i think it's important to um 
understand where white supremacy fits in here because um, you had like three years ago in Paris when we, you know, the world came together to sign the Paris Climate Agreement. Marshall Islands was leading that and saying like, this is a genocide that's happening, that we will lose our homeland and we will cease to exist as a people on the current path. And that's just not acceptable. So like, you know, (laughs) that's the scale that is happening right now that's actually underway. And, um, and, you know, for us to just sort of say, well, you know, that, that's such a huge scale and it feels so inevitable and like my small contribution is not going to do anything to change the rising of the ocean. Like, um, I think that, you know, behind all that is like, oh, well, me and my family will be okay mm-hmm. no matter what happens in our lifetime. It's going to be, you know, a couple generations from now or it's going to be someone else on the other side of the world. It's not going to be me or it's not going to be my family. And... It's just really problematic to think about it that way. Um, but I don't really know the best way. I mean, like, I'm not a, you know, I'm not like a civil rights leader. <laughs> like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to sort of inspire people on that level. I just know what the science says is necessary and the mismatch between what people are doing now and that is huge. I think knowing what is necessary makes you a leader. <laughs> I'm and maybe I don't know if that's good or bad news. I don't know if that's a high or low bar. But I think knowing what is necessary and being able to articulate to other people what they need to do is what I mean I, to me social justice leadership is. I mean, you may not think of that as inspiring, but a, a catchphrase from, you know, my recovery life um, that I feel is very applicable to, you know, my civil rights advocacy life is um, what we say about the 12 steps is it's a program of uh, attraction, not promotion, which is to say we don't try to sell people on it. You just try to live a life that can, is, illustrates by its very nature the benefits of, of, of doing so. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, because I've, I've been sober for a while, I'm like, well, of course that lifestyle looks attractive to me. But I think I'm not alone when I think about, oh, the lifestyle that I would have to lead as someone who is deeply committed to climate change, that doesn't look fun at all. Mm-hmm. That, I feel like I'm someone talking about giving up booze, by the way. Yeah. You know, my addiction to fossil fuels, it's some, that's a metaphor other people have used. Um, how does one live a lifestyle in, in that uh vein, the attraction, not promotion of an environmentally conscious lifestyle. Like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I'm really inspired by the um, Justice Democrats now putting up that vision, uh, you know, the Green New Deal or eco-socialism or whatever it is that you want to label it. It's a vision of uh, American society that gets back to our core values, which is caring for each other, caring for, you know, society as a whole being proud of our country and having a society that works for everyone like that's how that's why our country was founded and like it's inspiring to think that that's possible just within the next 10 or 15 years of of um you know guaranteeing healthcare and guaranteeing jobs and guaranteeing that we are 
an actual leader on climate change and like will sort of pay the reparations necessary to uh, undo our legacy of, you know, the United States is still the leading world's leading historical con- contributor to climate change, more so than any, with 4% of the population of the planet, we've emitted something like 20% of historical greenhouse gases. So it's just like, we got a lot of work to do here to, to steer that back to, to like making it right on a global scale. Now, to me, it's easier, though, to talk about those political changes than it is to talk about personal changes. Yeah, um, I mean, but it's going to require all of us standing up and talking about it and asking for it. And that's where I think the number one most important thing that any of us can do to, is just talking about climate change. The average American only has one or two climate conversations per year. So it's like, you know, right now we're doubling that for someone. <laughs> so, and And I can theorize about why I think that's so. Um, it's because those of us who, who acknowledge the science, it feels like all you can say is we're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of like nuance to the conversation. Um, and I also, I want to get back to the, the personal changes stuff too, mm-hmm. because I do feel like this metaphor between addiction to, to a kind of lifestyle and addiction to a substance, it does sort of, I thought of another way that it might fit, which is that... Um, I remember when I was thinking about giving up, you know, chemicals and a thought that I had and I thought you hear a lot from people who are who are trying to get sober is, but how am I going to have fun? Mm. Like, what is, you know, yeah. how am I ever going to have fun again? And what I always tell people after when, when they ask that of me is that after a while, your definition of fun changes. Like yeah. what I what I realize is like I wasn't really having fun mm-hmm. <laughs> before. Like I fun for me today is different. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something that you can say about cha- when you change your lifestyle to be more environmentally conscious? I f- now, I'm not. You, I have to have fun. And by the way, sure, sure. I, fun is not necessarily the word I would use there. Like just your idea of like what's a good life, maybe. Yeah. And what's convenient, and and what makes me feel good about um, my lifestyle. Yeah, I think that um, I can only speak about myself over the last couple of years, um, but it's sort of increased the quality of travel for me. Like I still travel and I still fly occasionally about once a year or so, um, but it's it's just like I see it for the luxury that it is. And I'm also, like, really excited about weird things like seeing Frozen Lake Superior, which (laughs) is, like, not most people's idea of, like, a great winter vacation. Like, most people would want to, like, fly to Cancun or something, I think, from Minnesota. But, um, But it's just sort of, like, you feel a lot more rooted in your community and with your friends in and in the environment around you. And it creates a much richer experience, at least it has for me. Instead of always like rushing off to the next thing, you're just sort of like sitting with where you are at that time and realizing that this is like, it's okay. This is where I am right now. It's great. I'm going to take a short break and be right back. 
This podcast is supported by a new film, Vice, from Adam McKay, the writer-director of The Big Short. Vice is an epic and comedic look at how Dick Cheney, an uncharismatic vice president, became the most powerful man in the world. You might remember this, but he literally shot someone in the face, and then the victim apologized for it. The film stars Christian Bale, Amy Adams, Steve Carell, and Sam Rockwell. See it in theaters December 25th. Family gatherings during the holidays can be wonderful, but uh, they can often be stressful. It's one of the reasons this show exists. Maybe it's the uncle who ruins dinner by talking about politics, specifically politics that, that you don't agree with. Maybe it's your relative that won't stop asking about your personal life, whether or not you're going to get married. And that is why... I am excited to announce that Calm is a sponsor of this show. It is the app that will help you reduce your stress, sleep better, and head into the holidays with a little less anxiety. More than 37 million people around the world have downloaded it. If you head to calm.com slash friends, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. I haven't told you what Calm is yet. It's a meditation app. So with the premium subscription, what you get is guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, and you get sleep stories. They're bedtime stories for adults. Uh, I assume that just means they're not for kids rather than like adult bedtime stories, but they're designed to help you relax before you doze off. So you can head to the lavender fields of France with Stephen Fry or explore New Zealand with Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones. For a limited time, with friends like these, listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription with calm.com slash friends. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash friends. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today. Again, calm.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So we're back talking to Eric Holthouse, who is a columnist or sorry, staff writer at Grist, but he's also a real live living and breathing meteorologist, which is something that I mean, when I hear the word, I just think of the weather channel. You know, I think of the guy in the tan suit in the green screen, but that's also you. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever have, first of all, I guess, 
I, I know from reading other interviews with you, you've always loved and been fascinated by the weather. Did you want to be a weatherman or or did you see more a path like this? What, what was your kind of vision for yourself? Yeah, I always wanted to be a scientist. I think that um, that the the broadcast meteorologist is is usually like I mean it's it's the main public scientist that most people interact with. On I, a it's daily probably basis. the only scientist that yeah. people hear from on a on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah, so that's a, it's like inherent responsibility, and especially during times of disasters. I mean, it's a life saving tool. So um, you saw that during you know Hurricane Sandy or during like. Um, you know, like blizzards in Minnesota or whatever, you know, people pay attention or just like looked at the last, um, the top 100 stories by engagement um, globally, like 10 of them were hurricane coverage, just like live blogs of hurricanes, (laughs) just like, you know, above all the stuff that's happening in politics all around the world, like people still really care about the weather. And yet another thing that I read in, 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 uh, researching this interview is that most meteorologists don't believe in climate change. Uh, sorry, TV mm-hmm. meteorologists, I mm-hmm. should say, like public, which who are public-facing scientists, or mm-hmm. maybe I should just say TV weathermen. Are they meteorologists who don't believe it, or are they just weathermen who don't believe it? I, I mean, you don't. I don't think you have to have a degree in meteorology to, to be a present the weather. No, um, but I would say, um, I would say the vast majority, like above fifty percent do believe in the science right. and do understand that it's a problem that's being caused by human activity. But I think, I mean, going back to the roots, this is the way I've explained it to myself, is going back to the roots of meteorology, there's a lot of of inherent connection with the military. And the reason meteorology exists as a science is to land airplanes during wartime. So um, that's why, you know, the weather stations are always at the airport is because it's like, planes, you know, I don't want them to crash. <laughs> so, um, so, um, it's, I do it maybe think, attracts a kind of like certain yeah, mindset. And, and I do think that the political right in the U S has co-opted, um, climate denial, um, you know, and funded by industry. Um, there's a clear sort of connection to, to that. Um, that isn't really rational in the way. Like, I don't think that a lot of meteorologists that are conservative think of it as something that's related to the science. It's more of like a criticism of the solutions that are proposed rather than a criticism of the science itself. And like an, an intellectual shortcut is to just say like, no, nope, that's not happening or it's not going to be a big deal or like the latest um, climate denial meme is like, okay, it is going to be a bad, de- bad deal but it's going to be too expensive to solve. It's like, okay, like <laughs> that doesn't make sense really. I mean, it's just it, it, like all of this, this I, that's why I don't really talk about climate denial very often because I feel like um, it's really an inherent um, disconnect over p- possible solutions and response to the problem, not the problem itself. I tend to agree to me that's sort of like talking about changing the minds of Trump voters. Mm-hmm. It's just... I don't, if people don't want to have their minds changed, if people aren't interested in the same solutions that mm. I am, like, it's that's just, it's not that they're not worth 
talking to or not worth trying to reach. It's just that's a in the limited amount of energy mm. and seconds of of you know being awake I have during a day. Like, how do I want to spend that? How do mm. I want to conserve my energy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it's interesting to me, though, that that there'd be this military background to meteorology, and yet there's a strain of kind of, um, again, maybe not climate denial, but climate like agnosticism or something, yeah. because or or saying that it's going to be too expensive. So so why why do anything? We don't say that about war. We don't mm. say, oh, that war is so expensive. Let's not fight it. Mm. Because it's clearly sort <laughs> no. of billed as an existential right. threat. Right. To us and our way of life. Instead, we say, oh, my God, there's this big existential danger. So we, we have to spend any amount of money possible mm. in order to prevent it, which it it does seem like that would be a good response to climate change, right? Mm-hmm. This is going to kill us all. It doesn't matter if we go broke. And you're starting to see that rhetoric on the left, I think, now. Um, coming up and saying like, well, what value would you put on human civilization? Like, what's like the discount rate for that? It's like, well, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, like, that's what the headline for the recent report that came out a couple months ago was climate change is going to cost 10% of GDP by the end of the century. And it's just like, well, compared to what? It's like, um, like, yeah, like, so... (laughs) It's just a really weird way of thinking about it, I think, is like, like... Like, that requires, like, putting dollar values on human lives and, like, culture. And, like, yeah, I just think back to um, James Hansen, the NASA climate scientist who first sort of made this a public problem back in 1988 in his testimony to Congress. He said um, in one of his papers a couple years ago that, um, you know, rapidly rising sea level rise would require— or would would result in the loss of all coastal cities and all their history. It's just like, how do you put a dollar value on that? <laughs> I, 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 you know, tend to agree. Um, <laughs> and this is even, like, again, I guess I sort of have thought of myself as pretty woke on this issue, but I'm feeling, as we're talking, um, the discomfort that comes with, oh, yeah, this is this is really happening. You know, and it, we are coming to a, a a time where you know I'm I'm in my mid forties. I'm already we're already seeing the impact of climate change, but in my lifetime, we could start to see the kind of devastation that up until now has just been fodder for movies and and dystopian novels. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, my understanding correct? Like, I think it's already happening. I mean, yeah. it just again, it depends on 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 where you what center people your view. you include in that view right. exactly. So, um, yeah, we're, we're already seeing dystopia is already here. It's yeah. just unevenly distributed. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to, I'm really um, trying to pay much more close attention to. Um, uh, Yeah, like the apocalypse narratives and in this sort of um, framing that people have is like, well, you know, think back 500 years ago in the United States, like, or, you know, what we now call the United <laughs> States. Like, yeah. there was a massive genocide that happened. And, and for, for, for Native Americans, like their apocalypse is they're 500 years into their apocalypse. So it's just like, 
we it's really dangerous for us to think of this as something that still hasn't happened yet because it's in process. Yeah. Um, and that we, you know, we're already evacuating coastal areas in Alaska and in Louisiana is losing like multiple football fields of land per day. So it's like. So I keep coming back to this <clears throat> resistance that um, I want to figure out not just how breakthrough for myself, but again, how to sort of talk about it with other people is the what do I do, right? Uh, I think we covered on this show the ways that the straw ban is not actually a useful um, tool. Um, it sort of got it, it, it got held up as like a, woohoo, everybody be eco-conscious and, and, and we're going to ban straws. Mm-hmm. And a, you know, a bunch of my friends in the disability community were like, no, don't ban them. Like, we need them. And by the way... You think this if this makes you feel good to ban them, but that's not the real problem. Straws are not the real problem. So what is the real problem? What are the things that we can individually do every day? I've, for instance, mm-hmm. decided maybe it does make a difference to not take a straw, but that also feels silly. I mean, it mm. feels like, really? Like, that's a thing that matters? Like, I don't know how else to put this. Like, what, what's... What is so trivial that we sh- I shouldn't fool myself and what actually matters? Mm-hmm. I, I still think that talking about climate change is the most important thing that we can do. Um, it takes a lot of courage. And it- what do we say? Don't take that straw. Like, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm actually kind of being serious because yeah, no. like around social justice, I can see a million different ways into a conversation. Right. Um, when someone says something anti-Semitic. Like, uh, this happened to me not too long ago. Someone was talking about um, uh, how Jews control Hollywood. Mm. And like I was like, hey, you know, let's just take a second and talk about that as the history of it and, like, the stereotype. And mm. it, was a, it was a way into a larger conversation, right? Because I had this moment of, like, you just said something that, you know, hinges on some stereotypes. And it, it went okay because also I've, over time I, I didn't. I've learned kind of how to do that. Besides, don't take that straw. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are what are the ways into these conversations? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel stupid because now I'm now I'm thinking of stuff. But like, it does feel it gives some. Please help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that um, I would call myself an eco socialist. So I think that any sort of idea that's based around capitalistic growth economy is really like dangerous right in that um starting to imagine sort of like a circular economy or a sharing economy or again like however you want to define it alternatives to the consumption centered lifestyle period like you know <laughs> it could mean anything for anyone. And, and like, that's why I, I just think challenging people to understand that the vision that you have of this sort of like we're fucked world is not fate. Like that's not our inevitable path. We need to work together to try to imagine how we fit into a world that's different than that and start to like work backwards and make that a reality every day. And it, can be anything that we feel that we're able to do. But, you know, like, there was a study last year that's, like, sort of ranked actions um, 
in terms of their impact impact on on carbon emissions and like flying, driving, eating meat, um, how you purchase your electricity for your home. Like those are probably the four major ones. Um, and those all involve like rethinking how your life works a little bit. Um, I mean, it's all sort of centered around consumption still too. So um, I, I just still think that like building community and being emotionally vulnerable and like understanding that this is really hard to think and talk about and that people are you're alleviating real suffering in real people by changing your lifestyle is a very also important narratives to, to, to put forward as a challenge to that. Like, well, nothing I do is going to matter anyway. And it is important also just to change our norms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think again, sort of parallel to, to, to racial justice um, or wokeness ar- around, you know, difference is in humans I feel like my own norms have changed like there are st- there are jokes that I will not make anymore that I used to I used to not have a problem with right um and I I think you know people have different norms about consumption too and they those can change um I I had a roommate once that was like um I'm cleaning out my closet I'm gonna go throw away these clothes and I was like what <laughs> <laughs> And it occurred to me, like, this person's norms were that you could just throw away clothes. And Mm -hmm. I guess you agree. Like, I I was, like, kind of horrified. Mm -hmm. Like, you at least have to to take them to good—I mean, maybe they won't get sold, but, like, how can you Mm -hmm. do that? But that's a a norm, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, also thinking about— Food waste. Food waste. I mean, like— How can you just throw that away? Almost half the food— Without being a mom. (laughs) Without being, like, don't—but yes. Yeah, it's like in, in, you know— And not clean your plate food waste, but rather— Well, food waste starts with purchasing too much food. Right. It's like we are overambitious when we go to the grocery store, and we think (laughs) that we're going to make all the stuff, and and it never happens. And so it's like, uh, I mean— Stop your aspirational shopping. yeah. Which do you think is worse, um, shopping to fulfill that week's needs or aspirational shopping and over-shopping? I don't really know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) I'm asking because um, my husband and I have gotten to a place where I think we just do— Day by day shopping, like we we've, we're moving away from aspirational shopping. We've gotten honest with ourselves about what our ability to cook for ourselves mm. is. Yeah, I think the science says that <laughs> that the best shopping is like uh, best food shopping is you buy the food that you need for that day's meals, and that requires doing a lot of shopping, which is possible in a place like. New York where that you know like it's built into your daily commute as you're walking past the store you just pick up something on the way home right. but if we have a car based culture it's a lot harder to like steer into the parking lot and blah 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 and you know like it's right. just like feels like our society is not structured to where we can do daily shopping which is what happens in a lot of places in the world either you like you know grow your own food or you have it like easily more easily accessible and here it's just like oh well we have a massive like freezer and two refrigerators and like we'll just store all this you know food and most of it ends up going bad. So it's, what are the what are the numbers on food waste that just that we just throw away or don't eat? I 
my, th- you know, I don't know right off that. Okay. I think I was thinking that it was something like 50% of what we buy is wasted, but it seems high, but also it seems like. <laughs> that seems high, but all of this seems so yeah. terrible. Like, I guess I can believe it. Um, I'm going to take another short break. I'll be right back. I swear I don't do this on purpose, but I am actually wearing something from my last Stitch Fix box right now as I record this show. It's a pair of slim jeans uh, with a kind of frayed ankle cut. They fit really well. They are slimmer than I would probably buy in the store. And, you know, the the sort of frayed hem thing is probably something I would steer away from as well. Uh, because I don't really like to take chances with clothes, and that is why I like Stitch Fix. It it actually it's not just that they send me stuff I I know I'll like. They send me stuff that I'm not sure that I will like, and I try it on, and often I like it. Uh, so Stitch Fix, if you didn't know, is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Just go to stitchfix.com/friends and tell them your size and what styles you like and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick items and send them directly to your door. Then you try them on, pay for only what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free, and there is no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix styling fee is only $20, which is applied towards anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com friends, and you will get an extra 25% off when you keep all the items in your box. That's stitchfix.com friends to get started today stitchfix.com slash friends. There's a battle going on with the future of the internet and your right to privacy. Big corporations like ISPs and ad networks are getting rich from selling your data. And Congress has completely failed to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. And now internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon are free to restrict websites, spy on your online activity, or sell your browsing history to advertisers. Now, I don't want my internet browsing to be tracked and sold. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. With one click, ExpressVPN shields my online activity from internet and mobile providers, as well as hackers and spies. Not that I would think that I'm a target of spies, but who knows? Could be. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. For less than $7, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies for just, you know, plain old thieves from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. To take back your internet privacy today and to find out how you can get three months for free, go to expressvpn.com slash friends. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash friends for three months free with a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash friends to learn more. So Eric, uh, so interesting to me that you mentioned emotional vulnerability um, when you're talking about the importance of talking about climate. Because I I do know, it's on your Twitter bio, that you were 
recently, within the last couple of years, diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is a high-functioning form of autism. And we usually associate that, stereotypically associate that, with emotional, um, a, a more flattened emotional state. Mm. But I also know that's something that you specifically have have said, no, 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 that's not true. So tell me, tell me more. Tell me what, tell me, I guess first, tell me what that diagnosis meant for you. Yeah, I, I think that the autism community is sort of controversial, but I think kind of generally steering away from um, using Asperger's or trying to separate oh. the diagnoses into levels. Okay. Um, because I think that... Um, it takes away from the humanity of the person if you're talking about high functioning versus low functioning. It's like it's just different. So, um, so I, I appreciate think, that that correction. Actually, yeah, I have. I mean, I mean, of course, like when you think about that, as opposed to any other kind of diagnosis, it doesn't make any sense at all. I'm a high functioning diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think in the sort of same thing. And I'm not actually a diabetic. I was making a joke. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that the same thing sort of goes for um for emotions or empathy um as a stereotype for autistic people that um it's not that I don't feel emotions. It's like if anything I feel it so much that I can't express it. And I think that that's sort of how I've been able to understand myself after this diagnosis is that um, I've always just been sort of surprised that other people don't talk about things that I think are just like normal to talk about. It was like, what, why, why does that barrier exist in society? Why should we not just be like saying what we believe? Like, I feel like that's a very autistic thing to say. It's just like, why does that norm exist? Like, that's just dumb. I'm smiling because I, I, I read some of what you've written about about your your autism diagnosis, and there is a part of me that feels like I I identify with that a lot. Um, uh, I think that it's really cool to to dispense with small talk like (laughs) (laughs) i think it's great to just dive into like you know how did you get to be the person that you are today yeah it's way more interesting than like talking about the weather even for me as a meteorologist i was was actually gonna argue about ask you about like the where where does your diagnosis and your interest in weather like coincide? Because there's again sort of a stereotype about people with autism that they are into like weird specific kinds of hobbies. That I think weather would be one of the things you might stereotypically associate. Then like travel is another one. Mm. I know. Um, so do you think that did that explain something about yourself? To you as well? Yeah, for sure. I have weird hobbies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like, um, I, <clears throat> one of my like weird hobbies is um, playing fantasy baseball, but not like actual fantasy baseball with real players, but like fake fantasy baseball where we're, we're all like this, you know, like group of fantasy, uh, fantasy. Yeah. Fantasy group squared. Of, like, stats, pe- pe- like, I don't know, just like really pouring into like the spreadsheets of these like fake 
computer-generated players, and we're all, like, competing in this online league, and it's just, like, the most nerdiest possible thing. So <laughs> this is not at all related to weather, but kind of it is. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I think that that's where my love of weather came in, too, and especially during, like, landfalling hurricanes or something like that. It's just, like, I have an obsession with, like, constantly following the statistics of the storm. Like, mm-hmm. what is the barometric pressure? Like, what is the wind speed and like what do the computer models say and like how do you like just by chance this has a very like massive societal benefit of me like sharing all this publicly because um and you know like during hurricane sandy i think i i mean like probably like one to two thousand tweets over a span of like 10 days like on i was doing like 18 hour days of just, like, constantly, like, putting up tweets about the storm. When you do that stuff, um, when you're tweeting about barometric pressure, like, what does that mean for for you and for us? Like, how is that—are you thinking about it in terms of— are you thinking about social justice? Are you thinking about just cool numbers? I'm, I'm curious, like, what the— sort of connection between this fascination with numbers. And I know you're very passionate about the way that weather and climate fit in with the world. Yeah. I mean, I would say that— I mean, I guess specifically you're probably not thinking about social justice when you think about barometric pressure, but— But I am. Okay, (laughs) cool. Then that's—never mind. That was a brilliant question of mine. (laughs) I think um, that—I think that there are probably a lot of meteorologists that are on the spectrum where it's just more comfortable to— immerse yourself in the data than it is to um to think about how there are actually real people being affected by the storm like there's a there's a crutch in there mm-hmm. but um but i also think that uh, there are a lot of meteorologists that are not in that profession for any other reason other than the public safety part is like if sort of feel a public mission by their science. It's a public-facing science. And so when I'm looking at the stats of the storm, it's sort of like always with the intent of saying, like, how bad is this going to be for people, for actual real people? Um, And, you know, that's where, like, my politics comes in, too, just saying, like, all these numbers and all of this data about climate change or, like, carbon, tons of carbon emissions or, like, the percent share of the airline industry in how there's no real, like, alternative for electric-powered aircraft because of, like, the weight ratio of batteries is just makes it impossible for them to ever be a realistic. Like, so, like, well, therefore, that just means, like, we can't fly anymore. Like, that's just easy. A decision for me is, like, we're just going to have to, like, ban the airline industry and come up with something else. I was going to say, (laughs) I feel like your diagnosis and your politics have this interesting confluence, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we were talking about whether or not you used to consider yourself an activist. And you're saying, like, well, I just know what's necessary. But there's something about who you are that may or may not have to do with autism. Who knows, right? That... makes part of who you part of who you are is just saying what's necessary. Mm. Yeah, I'm really inspired too in um recent days from that frankness yeah. that may or may not be associated with your, you know, autism seems really important right now. Yeah. Yep, I I'm really inspired by uh Greta Thunberg who is this 15-year-old uh Swedish teenager who has just confronted world leaders at the UN climate conference and said, you know, 
she's she also has an autism diagnosis, and she said like. I, you know, I'm not here to tell you that you guys should change what you're doing because we people have said that before and you just ignored us. And it's like, I'm just here to say that change is coming whether you like it or not. Like, you guys are going to act like children. You realize that, that, um, that children are here to tell you the message that you're too afraid to tell yourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's just like very clear moral voice that, um, is very inspiring just because she cuts through the bullshit. And, you know, I think it takes that braveness and that clarity. Um, who, like, may, may, maybe that's partly related to autism. Maybe it's just, like, being a 15-year-old in 2018, <laughs> anywhere in the world, right. just is like, I don't have time to, to, to fuck around anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> um I think it's inter- I just think it's interesting because I, I, I do feel like, you know, whatever the who knows, who knows what the science is. I'm not a scientist. Mm. I get to say that now. Mm. Um, but we do need people who are willing to cut through the bullshit, who don't have time for niceties, mm. you know, um, who aren't concerned about necessarily hurting other people's feelings or saying something uncomfortable. Mm. Um, you happen to be one of those people. Yeah, I'm trying not. I'm trying not to like piss people off, but actually, kind of, am trying to piss the right people off. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's it's just like, yeah. It, it just goes back to sort of like the small talk thing. It's just like, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, I don't come off as rude. And that is it for today's show. I would like to wish everyone who is listening, if you are listening at the time of year that I recorded this podcast, I wish you a happy holidays. I would like to remind you that the most important gift you can give anyone is to take care of yourself. So do that uh, this holiday season. Take some time out and think about not what you want to do next year. I would advise not to think about resolutions. I would suggest to think about what you accomplished this year. What did you feel the best about? And then this is easy. Well, it's easy to say. It's what I try to do. Just do more of that. What did I feel great about doing this year? My resolution will be more of that. Which definitely means more of this show. So I will definitely see you next week. Take care of yourselves. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.